0: Hello, it's 2nd of December 2018, and this is episode 85 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm Kirsty.
0: We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga.
1: How has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Or the last few weeks? (laughs)
0: Yeah, thank you. This is the point at which I make up for some very serious omissions. (laughs) that I made in last week's episode because when I was asked how has your week in Star Wars been I was like oh I haven't really done much Star Wars stuff (laughs) which really could not have been further from the truth because I did a lot of Star Wars things and they just somehow managed to completely evaporate from my brain Uh, So yeah, today I'm going to rectify that. So what I did is I first of all met up with Marie Claire, who's the host of the wonderful What the Force podcast, which I strongly recommend you check out because she gets great interviews and it's a really professionally produced show. It's very impressive um and yeah she was lovely we had a really nice time together we actually went to see a musical called mythic um which we both absolutely adored and loved so much we recorded a little mini episode (laughs) about it, responding to it which you can find on the what the force um podcast feed so yeah go over there if you want to check out our thoughts um and yeah i actually love mythic so much that i saw it again yesterday too (laughs) it's so good And yeah, it just has the most amazing Raylo stuff in it, Kirsty. I can't even begin to tell you. There's literally like a scene where he calls the heroine like nobody (laughs) (laughs) and she's suitably outraged. Which I appreciated. Yeah, Um, I
1: listened to the show, so I heard you both gushing over it and I was like, Oh, I kinda wish that I could see this.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I'd love to see it with you. Luckily, they are doing a soundtrack recording now, so you will at least be able to hear the songs, which okay, are cool. all marvellous. So, yeah, you'll be able to experience it on some level.
1: Awesome.
0: Um, yeah, and then what else happened is that Marie Claire and I met up with Riri, who also listens to the show. Um, and, yeah, she was lovely, and we had a nice meal together where we discussed all kinds of Star themed goodness. And after the meal, we went to the Royal Albert Hall to watch A New Hope in concert, which was a really, really magnificent experience. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the films with a live orchestra, Kirsty? I
1: haven't. I would really love to. So I'm always on the lookout for when they'll come here. But I haven't been lucky enough to do that yet.
0: Yeah, I strongly, strongly recommend it. So I know you would anyway. But yeah, if the opportunity arises, you should absolutely seize it with both hands because... Is just out of this world and there's certain scenes where the music comes through so powerfully when it's live, like the whole twin sun scene where Luke's looking out onto the sunset. Mm. Oh, it's just gorgeous. Although, to be honest, one of my main observations was how easy it is to forget that you're listening to an orchestra because the playing is so immaculate that it just registers as the normal soundtrack and you just get so absorbed by the world of the film and the magic of that story that you're not really focusing on the orchestra, which is quite an achievement on the film's part because it's a spectacular orchestra playing extremely well and it's an amazing venue in the Royal Albert Hall. But yeah, I was just completely swept away by it. It made me feel like a child again. So yeah, it was wonderful and it was so lovely to meet Marie Claire and Riri. They were both really kind and we had some fantastic Star Wars-filled conversations. And yeah, I love doing it, so... Yeah, I hope to meet more listeners at some point because, yeah, it's lots of fun. But yeah, I feel like I have now made amends. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Kirsty, how has your week in
1: Star Wars been? Well, first, I don't think you should give yourself such a hard time because in your defence, you had been on holiday since then. And whenever I go on holiday, it always feels like a huge amount of time has passed and things just yes. seem like really long ago when they're actually just last week. So
0: yeah. No, that's exactly what happened. So I was in Barcelona and I was only in Barcelona for four days, but it was almost like that was a fixed point in time. <laughs> and everything that happened prior to Barcelona was just like washed away in my brain. It was very bad.
1: <laughs> that's the beauty of Barcelona. Yes. Um, I've had a pretty quiet week just besides like enjoying the latest Resistance episode. Um, and I, I did go back and watch The Last Shadow again in preparation for the spotlight today. Um, oh nice! As if I need an excuse to watch that movie again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's always a good reason to watch The Last Jedi. Exactly. Again.
1: Well, you say it's on Netflix, so it's like the classic movie that I go to when I don't know. I just want to put something on, you know. Yeah. So I've I've been like jumping around a lot in it, just watching specific scenes and sections and that. And yeah, I still love it very much.
0: Oh, so nice. Yeah, I wanted to rewatch Last Jedi and The Force Awakens before today's show um, because to inform people we're going to be doing a big deep dive into the whole Rey kylo stuff in the sequel trilogy so far. So for obvious reasons it would be helpful to familiarise oneself with those films. Um, but yeah, I basically ran out of time. I did, however, finish reading Wuthering Heights which I was proud oh, of. Oh, good for you. Yeah. I was like, yes! It's a very easy to read book. It's not that it's like a a slog or anything but as you know i just don't get much time for reading and yeah it was a good feeling to finish it Mm -hmm. so yeah i will definitely bring that to the table today so it'll be fun um yeah so i think that's probably our preliminaries out the way would you say
1: yeah let's move on to news
0: okay awesome (laughs) uh yeah the first section i have in my notes for the news is Sequence of episode 9 revealed via Vic Mahoney's office? Just because I wanted to bring it some flair, if you will.
1: And people were that excited about this.
0: Yeah, and people were very excited, which, to be fair, I understand. My heart did a little giddy leap when I saw this. Um, yeah, so would you like to describe what happened? Because you can be very rational about these things, Kirsty.
1: Yeah, so it was a tweet from Ava DuVernay, who we know is friends with Vic Mahoney. Um, So she posted a photo and she said, checking on my friend, the one and only history-making badass director, Victoria Mahoney in her Star Wars nine offices at Pinewood in London. How she and JJ look so spry and fresh after all these months shooting is incredible. That's the sign of a happy set led by good people. And the photo is the gorgeous Vic Mahoney in her office hard at work, and she has, like, a big mood board behind her. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) people are having lots of fun zooming in on this mood board and (laughs) trying to work out the plot of episode nine.
0: (laughs) Peak fandom. Spoiler, Ray becomes a cowboy.
1: (laughs) We're we're this starved. So they've been doing an amazing job keeping everything secret, so this is what we have to work with right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've got to take what we can get.
1: Do you remember um so ryan johnson used to well i don't know if he still does but he posts on instagram and he posted like this collage thing um it looked like you know like just posters on a wall outside somewhere in la but on it like there was one part that had a picture of luke skywalker i think it was oh, one yeah. of steel saunders um pictures <laughs> like have you seen this man or whatever <laughs> yeah because right, luke was, it was. missing. And then people were trying to decode all the secret messages from that wall. And it was like, I'm pretty sure this is not something Ryan put together himself.
0: Oh, they're so cute.
1: <laughs> you know, it's just... Oh, I love this fandom. I know, it's bonkers. So, <laughs> But yeah, there's a lot to look at here. Like, she has that amazing photo of the person in the Vader helmet with the pink fur coat. Oh, that <laughs> is just such an aesthetic. I like it.
0: But what do you think it means, Kirsty? That's oh. the important question here.
1: I don't know. Maybe they're going to resurrect Darth Vader and he's going to be wearing new things? He's gonna-
0: I'll tell you what my theory is. I could see it being like a Bride of Frankenstein situation.
1: So they
0: bring back Vader successfully, but then of course he's all Padme, 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 Padme. Because oh, yeah. he only wants Padme. Um, so they bring Padme back, but obviously she's not in a very good shape because she's... <laughs> a corpse for a while so they have to give her her own Vader suit <laughs> and she has one that's exactly the same as Vader's but to make it clear she's a girl she like wears like glamorous pink accessories
1: Padme Lady Vader I like it <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. that feeds into what's been going on in the Darth Vader comics recently so <laughs> I say you're onto something
0: yeah great we've unlocked the key to all this
1: (laughs) and you know there's been the whole Mike Zero rumour of Padme being in episode 9 recently so confirmed
0: yeah this is clearly how JJ is going to um, link together all three trilogies
1: (laughs) amazing (laughs) but yeah there's there's a lot of other stuff going on there oh oh, I just noticed those like cute animal masks it's (laughs) all so
0: random I love it
1: there's the Force Awakens crawl which -hmm. makes sense um, although it's interesting that I don't see The Last Jedi's crawl mm. unless that's like right behind her next to it but can't can't tell
0: yeah um, maybe they've blacklisted Ryan
1: <laughs> oh that's it oh yeah this is what it confirms that they're going to retcon The Last Jedi it doesn't exist as far <laughs> as they're concerned um, the most interesting point for us is that there's a poem um, at the top just over the Darth Vader mask photo Um, and it says Out beyond right, out beyond wrong There is a place, I'll meet you there
0: Mm. It's a paraphrase of a Rumi poem So, and again, it's all in translation anyways, obviously Rumi wasn't writing in English (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's just a really interesting sentiment that you could say is relevant to our interests and yeah, I really like it again, this all sounds like analysis 101 but it's obviously pointing towards some sort of middle ground between right and wrong you know which is interesting and that's what we like to see from our star wars a bit of muddying of the waters and some extra complexity so yeah like i really like this little quote i don't think it's enormously revelatory and i know you certainly don't Kirsty, because you're like, well, yeah, this is just where it's
1: going, right? Well, I think it feeds into the themes of what we've seen so far in the trilogy. I mean, it yes. reminded me specifically, like, if I had to point to a moment that exists in the story already, it's when Ray and Kylo touch hands. So you have that meeting, that connection. Yeah, of, of people who are supposedly on opposite sides but are coming together and feel this affinity.
0: Yeah. No, totally. I think that's a very good read on it. And yeah, like, I just like it because it shows that going forward, that is still going to be, or at least one imagines, that is still going to be one of the key ideas and central themes in Nine, as it has been in the other two films. Which is, of course, natural and what you'd expect because they are going to form a trilogy, as in one story. But yeah, it's always nice to see little bits and pieces of evidence supporting that theory.
1: Hmm. So we'll have to see if maybe there's going to be another photo of JJ's office.
0: Maybe he has like a complimentary portrait of Vader to match the one of Vader in the fur coat.
1: Maybe he has a Kylo one.
0: <laughs> what fabulous accessory would Kylo be wearing though?
1: I, I don't know. I, mean, he, I think he looks pretty fabulous already. So Right. Have we said all we want to say about that? I think so. I mean, it feeds in nicely to what we're going to talk about later. Like, I really yes. feel like it is relevant to the themes of the saga, or at least like our confirmation bias is making us feel that way. Um, because yes. it's not even just to the trilogy that we're watching. But I feel like this is kind of at the core of of Star Wars. This idea of reaching out to people and connecting to them, even though they might be wrong and have made terrible yes. mistakes, like you know that's what being a hero is about showing compassion and and connection yeah. and and faith in that so yeah
0: and there's always opportunities for dialogue so yeah that's reassuring uh yep and then the next thing we want to talk about is that a new youtube series has been announced called Star Wars Galaxy of Adventures
1: uh yeah would you like to introduce this Kirsty sure it hasn't just been announced we've actually got some of the episodes now Um, Oh, yeah, of course it has, yeah. So I think they've released seven already so far. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I've seen all of them. Um, This is from StarWars.com. With Galaxy of Adventures, we wanted to craft something that allowed parents to help their kids take their first step into a much larger world, whether they were ready to show their kids the films or wanted to find new ways to explore the content. James Weil, Lucasfilms Vice President for Franchise Content and Strategy, tells StarWars.com.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that pretty clearly encapsulates the whole idea behind these little shorts because they do like pretty much what you'd imagine based on that, which is they take these key scenes from the original trilogy and it looks like the prequels from the trailer that they put out for this. Um and it just animates them in this really cool kid-friendly style. That's kind of like anime-ish, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's just really fluid and beautiful and it makes it very appealing for young kids um, while still keeping to the main beats from the originals and even using the same voiceover, actually. So when you see Luke, it's still Mark Hamill from 1976 doing the
1: voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really short. They're only about a minute long. So they're even yeah. shorter than Forces of Destiny, which surprised me. I thought they were going to yeah. be longer than that. Um, and yeah, they're kind of riffs on decontextualized scenes from Star Wars. <laughs> so yes. I, I'm really enjoying them, and I think the the animation is just beautiful. Um, yes. But if I was like trying to introduce a kid to Star Wars, I think I'd probably be more likely to show them Forces of Destiny than this, because they're not really like self-contained narratives. Yeah. They're like isolated moments that if you didn't really have anything else to go on, I'm not sure how much you'd get out of it beyond all oh, that look yeah, cool. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's no, true. And to be honest, most of the excitement for this, I've seen it come from like older fans who really like seem like keyed into the style and stuff. And I think they especially appreciated the recreation of the Vader hallway scene from Rogue One. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> Yeah, like so, it will be interesting to see how successful this whole endeavour is in reaching the kids that they obviously want to get to. I guess with the very short run times, they're just anticipating extremely short attention spans. So, I can only think that these shorts are intended for very, very small children. Like, children, when they're so young, they're not really interested in stories. They literally just want like concepts and characters and pretty things to look at.
1: Mm. If you're that young, do you want to watch Vader slaughtering a bunch of rebels in a hallway? Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? I mean, I know that scene exists, so I'm not like, oh, how could they possibly show that? But it kind of, it's confusing me a little bit in terms of who the Otago audience is, because it's like, this is on a new YouTube channel called Star Wars Kids, Mm. but that scene is extremely violent. And it's sanitized somewhat in the animated form, but still, it's intense.
0: Yeah. I think what they're doing, to be honest, is they have very deliberately designed these shorts with parents in mind, and like they really want to like get those nostalgia feels from the parents. So then the parents will actively be like, "Oh, come here, little Jimmy. <laughs> like, let's sit down and watch this like little short together, and you'll see how cool Star Wars is, right?" I really think that's the rationale. They know that even though the channel is called YouTube Kids in reality it's gonna be a lot about parents getting excited by the shorts and then like dragging their kids over and showing them to them. And the idea being that the kids will then be interested and want to learn more and want to seek out more content.
1: Mm. Yeah. It does seem like that. Like like I said, I'm enjoying them, but they do seem almost like more for adults who will then show them to kids. Yeah that
0: exactly it's a little bit cynical when you think about it but that's fine because it's like a big multimedia property that ultimately is about making money sure <laughs> and they can make art in the pursuit of making money but the end goal is always to make money so yeah if it's successful and like seeding those new generations of stores fans that every property needs to remain vibrant then good for them
1: yeah I mean, I think they did a really great job with the ones with young Luke. He looks fantastic. Yeah, like he the way does. He's whipping around the hair and he's like in his speeder and then when he gets the yeah. lightsaber and he's doing all those moves.
0: Yeah. I was about to say my two most memorable moments of animation from the series so far. They're definitely Luke in the speeder racing across Tatooine and that little moment you get at the end of every single short where it's like the zoom out as Luke is like holding the lightsaber aloft mm-hmm. like in the poster pose it's just so epic it's really
1: mm-hmm. cool yeah and since we got one from a Rogue One scene I wonder if we're going to get one from Solo as well and mm-hmm. whether they would do a different design for Han if it's Olden Han
0: oh yeah that'd be interesting it's like, I must say with the style I think Han was the only character design that I didn't appreciate so much I guess because the design for Han in like the, the series, it was much more simple than the others. It felt like less detail had gone into it, which I think was a deliberate stylistic choice. But I don't know. I just didn't feel he was as well done as Luke and Leia.
1: Yeah, I think it's easier to identify Luke and Leia. They've got distinguishing features. Obviously, Leia's hair. Yeah. Han Han's like, oh, the scoundrel. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's just a dude.
1: <laughs> he's got Chewie with him. That's how you know it's Han.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, yep, then the next thing we want to mention is that Stephen Schiff has joined the Cassian Andor series as a showrunner. And there's also a bit more info too, but we'll get to that as I read it out. So this is from Deadline. The recently announced Star Wars series for Disney's upcoming family-focused streaming service Disney Plus-based Rogue One A Star Wars Story is being shepherded by former The Americans executive producer Stephen Schiff. Schiff serves as executive producer and showrunner on the live-action series, a prequel being toplined by Rogue One star Diego Luna, reprising his role as Cassian Andor. Jared Bush, Moana, originated the project and wrote a pilot script and a Bible. And then the article continues just to give a little bit of background about Schiff. Schiff is coming off a five-year stint on the acclaimed FX drama series The Americans, which he joined at the start of season two, rising to executive producer and sharing in the series two Best Drama Emmy nominations. Schiff, who started his career in features, has written or co-written such movies as Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, The Deep End of the Ocean, True Crime, Lolita, and most recently, 2017's American Assassin. Right. And, yeah, so that's quite a bit of information, but I wanted to give some background so people had a sense for the other projects this guy's been involved with. Um, Yeah, and I think the most exciting connection is probably The Americans, which I know you've been watching recently, Kirsty. Would you like to talk a bit about that
1: show? Yeah, I'm only on season one, but I'm almost at the end of it, and I can't stop watching it. Like, after we finish recording today, I'm going to go back and marathon a few more episodes because... (laughs) i like i was addicted from the first episode it's that good oh that's so cool but i i like that as a connection because that's a fantastic spy series and hopefully cassie and Andor will be in a fantastic spy series so it could be a match made in heaven yes absolutely
0: so yeah like i really don't know much about this guy because i haven't seen the americans yet although i really want to also for the kerry russell connection because of course she's going to be in episode nine um but yeah he certainly sounds more than qualified for the job which is always nice to see he's clearly a capable dude um but perhaps the detail that most caught my attention is that the project was originated by jared bush who wrote the pilot script and bible i'm not sure that that information was known before Um, And it's just amusing to me because he was apparently involved with Moana. (laughs) I love Moana. I love Moana so, so much. It's so great. And it's just an interesting combination of projects to me because I absolutely adore Moana, but I can't imagine things much more different from what I envisage this Cassie and Andal series to be, you know, but like a lot of these screenwriters are extremely versatile and they write all kinds of things with very different premises and very different characters. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure he'll kill it. And Moana turned out so great that I have confidence in a project that someone who was heavily involved with Moana is really spearheading. So it's great.
1: Yeah, I probably should have looked up his name and done research before, but I'm assuming that he's done other things in addition to Moana. It's just maybe that's the most high profile thing that they can point to. So maybe that's why that's mentioned.
0: Yeah, like just looking it up, it seems that he's done a lot of TV. But yeah, you're right. Moana's definitely the most high-profile thing he's done. He wrote the screenplay for it. and It yeah. looks like he was like the main screenwriter for it. Let's see. Okay, actually, there are lots of people on that screenplay. <laughs> but that's very common for animated films. And it looks like he was also involved with Zootopia, which was also brilliant.
1: Oh, yeah, I love that. And while, you know, it might be the case that these... TV series are marketed more towards adults with darker themes and everything, but at the end mm. of the day, they're also still Star Wars, so they have to still have an element of that fairy tale thing, and, you know, love triumphing overall, and all that. Like, I'd be kind of yeah. sad if it lost that entirely. Yeah. So hopefully exactly. that's still a theme in there somewhere.
0: It can't be too dark and gritty.
1: Sure. Like, there's, there's so much potential in Cassian's backstory. So, yeah. I mean there's that whole line about his being in the fight since he was six years old so it's like what has happened to him to shape him into the person that he is when we when we are introduced to him at the beginning of Rogue One and he's doing questionable things but he's so convinced that it's for this greater good you know and it is but it means that he's having to wrestle with some pretty big moral dilemmas there
0: yeah I think I read that in one of the books or something they reveal that his family was allied with the separatists
1: well he was from a separatist planet i don't know specifically right, okay. like whether he considers himself a separatist or anything
0: okay interesting yeah i'm sure more will be revealed in due course right then the next thing we want to do is go into a little chat about resistance um with the latest episode that we've seen being the platform classic yeah would you like to read the synopsis for this episode Kirsty? An
1: upcoming race reunites Yigar with his estranged brother Marcus, who needs to win to pay off his debt to a criminal organisation.
0: With that criminal organisation being the Guavian Death Gang, which is a nice little tie-back to The Force Awakens, which Mm. I certainly appreciated.
1: (laughs) Yeah, those guys are very recognisable, so it was kind of cool to see them again.
0: Yeah, they're roaming the galaxy up to no good. I also like that they're shown doing something so petty. I guess it's... Pretty much what they were doing to Han Solo to be right, honest, though. They exactly. just to reclaim a debt. <laughs> it's just it so money. happened that they were mixed up with much more epic scale events in the Force Awakens. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's besides the point. It was cool to see them again. But yeah. What did you think about this episode as a
1: whole? I had been really looking forward to this episode since we got information on it a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. it did not disappoint. Awesome. This whole thing is what Star Wars is about for me. So. Yeah. Very happy. No,
0: I really liked it. I thought it did such a good job of building the brothers' relationship. I've seen some people like say they didn't like how so much of the episode hinged on this whole idea of information being withheld, which of course is true. They do very deliberately conceal things from the viewer, but I didn't feel it was too artificial, if that makes sense. Yeah, because that of didn't course then Yes, yeah, so it's not like they need to tell each other what happened because they both know full well what happened in the past. So, and when it comes out in the story, it did feel organic to me. So, it was in this moment of like anger and resentment, and it felt very natural to the sequence of events. So, yeah, I felt the writing was really beautiful, definitely amongst the strongest in the series so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it had been going this way for a while. They've done a really good job of, like, teasing Yiga's backstory, right? And we'd all been speculating on what might have happened to his family. And yeah. then we hear that his brother's coming back in, but he's his only family member left, but they're estranged. It's like, obviously something awful happened here. Yeah. Um, and then to see that, you know, the the bridge rebuilt between them is really beautiful.
0: Yeah, no, it's very moving. So it was... <sighs> Like, I like actually how it was so mundane, what happened to the family. Like, is that really heightened the tragedy of it for me? Um, I think in Star Wars, you're very used to families being separated for very militaristic reasons. And the fact it really was just a tragic accident that Marcus caused, essentially, through his own selfishness. I thought that was very shocking. if. I really felt that in the moment. I was like, oh, God, that really? That's what happened? Shit. You know, it was, like, very powerful for me. So I really liked how it was done. And, yeah, obviously most moving of all was the way they build towards the conversations they have after the race when they kind of start those first steps towards reconciliation.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciated how Yiga brought it back to Kaz and, like, thanked him for helping talk him through it and encourage him to go for that connection again yeah because otherwise if it hadn't gone there i think kaz could have been kind of a bit more forgotten in this episode because obviously the focus was yiga and marcus but at the end of the day kaz is the main character so it really highlighted that it was kaz's open heart that inspired yiga to do that yeah even though he hadn't wanted to listen at first
0: yeah, no, exactly. And it's also good because it shows the positive change that Kaz can bring about. So again, he's a character who gets flack sometimes for being a bit useless and a bit...
1: <laughs> I, yeah, every time people say this, I'm like,
0: he's not useless. Yeah, exactly. But that's why things like this are important. It really drives it home that no, he's not useless. He has a lot to offer. And he's a really good, kind person who can influence other people and to help them change for the better. And that's extremely important. And yeah, that was one of the main points to be made by this episode, which I was really glad to see.
1: Yeah. Oh, one other thing I wanted to touch upon was that when we first started watching Resistance, I was like, oh, I feel like the racing part of it is going to be my least favourite because I'm not too big into action scenes or like just stuff that, like, from a very cynical perspective, is maybe just about selling toys and that kind of thing. But yes. I think they've actually been doing an amazing job of weaving in the racing to the storytelling and and making it so complementary of what is actually going on within the narrative. So like, you know, you've got in the notes here, you loved how the race like mirrored their conflict because the way it like builds up and it's almost like, you know, a musical score swelling. Like the action is like underscoring the the emotional tension there.
0: Yeah. No, it was like a real metaphor for, emotional journey they've both been through and yeah like it was really really effective because yeah I was the same before the series started and I heard it was all going to be about racing and pilots I was like I'm not sure how much this is going to be for me but then when I've seen how it's executed I think it's very impressive and it's always about the story it's never gratuitous. It's never just like, hey, guys, let's just race for fun. woo!" Like, Which wouldn't be a big problem if they did do that. But there's always some sort of plot ramifications. And it's always about building towards something or moving things forward, which I really appreciate.
1: Same.
0: Yeah. And I feel like I also just want to mention my favorite quote from this episode, which is from Jaeger. And it's, it's important to forgive people. When you don't, nobody wins. So true, Jaeger. So true.
1: Mm hmm. Very important. Exactly. Forgiveness, love, And Star yeah. Wars.
0: It's kind of like it's important?
1: Almost like it's a <laughs> fundamental theme of the franchise.
0: Whoa, wow. It, this is all like too much, Kirsty. It's pretty shocking stuff.
1: <laughs> Good to teach kids to love people and accept them and forgive Mm, I beg to disagree
0: (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah no of course I completely agree I think those are very important messages
1: yeah and that's just why I loved it because I was like yeah that's that was for me
0: right and then for the spotlight section we are going to bring something back that we first introduced a while ago and it's kind of petered out a little bit. Um, Not for any lack of will, it's just that we've realised that starting out each episode with a competition is not the best structure for a show because, like, first of all, it's a bit alienating for people who are just tuning in for the first time. They'll be like, what is this? And second of all... You've also got to keep on coming up with challenges. So, yeah, there's lots of different elements involved. And we do plan to continue with, like, a side reading and stuff that we can then build on in the future. But, yeah, I just wanted to explain why you haven't been hearing so much about, so, how's your reading been going? But, yeah, on the plus side, this episode is where we're going to be making good on our promise to read the book The Mad Woman in the Attic by Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar which was first published in 1979, I chose this book for us to read because I'd already read it, but I suggested that Kirsty should read particular chapters and that we could then have a discussion about those chapters in relation to the sequel trilogy and how there's certain themes and ideas that are brought up that are perhaps relevant to various degrees and yeah, then just have a conversation like exploring how we can look at the sequel trilogy through the lens that is established in the book, while also moving beyond that and coming up with our own ideas, because I never like to be too strict about these things. Um, yeah, so with the book, like, do you want to just give your overall impressions, Kirsty? I know you were only able to read a few chapters in the end, but what were your general feelings?
1: Um, I really appreciated it for kind of solidifying a lot of my thoughts on the sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a nice thing to fall back on and be, like be able to pick things out that are obviously like common threads that run through the history of storytelling around female protagonists. Um, yes. And I know that this book leans heavily on female authors with good reason, because mm-hmm. that was fundamental to how they perceived the world in relation to a patriarchal society. Yes. Um, but to that point, it actually the more I think about it, the more I appreciate the sequel trilogy and how actually it's been quite amazing that, I hope this doesn't seem insulting, but that men have written Ray and done such a great job of yeah. her, to be honest. yeah, I think it can be hard for some men and in terms of how the fandom, and this is a very general statement, but in terms of how people have been reacting to The Last Jedi, and even from back with The Force Awakens, the whole Ray is a Mary Sue thing, yeah um, I think some people do have a really hard time with female protagonists and especially ones that have such nuance and um, maybe misunderstand what her actual journey is about That it's not always about overcoming physical challenges but that it's a journey of self-discovery yes. um, so yeah this book really helped me kind of solidify certain concepts there
0: yeah that's awesome yeah, and Kirsty made an excellent point about the book that I just want to elaborate on a little, which is that the book, it's very much about female authorship. So I don't want anyone to go off and read this book thinking that it's all just about stories about like the heroine's journey and the stories about female protagonists, because those things do very much come up and they are an important part of the book. But the entire premise of the book, that it's about looking at female authors particularly in the 1800s and exploring the context in which they were writing and essentially the barriers they had to deal with in their pursuit of self-expression in their writing. So it's basically looking at how all these various women, so like Jane Austen and Mary Shelley and Emily and Charlotte Bronte and Emily Dickinson and many others, It takes those authors and it looks at how their work interacts with the dominant cultural structures of the time. So that is to say, as Kirsty mentioned, that in the 1800s it was obviously extremely patriarchal and very oppressive for women. And that naturally comes across in the writing. But what's really interesting about those women, at least in the chapters I've studied most closely, which are the ones about Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre specifically, is that they don't just accept the structures and the context that they're writing in. They basically seek ways to examine it and deconstruct it and subvert it. And that's what's so interesting, and that's a big marker of what makes those stories so fundamentally feminine, and also radical in many different ways, which we'll go into. And yeah, what's most interesting about the sequel trilogy is how it does manage to successfully emulate some of that radical energy, which, yeah, given that is men writing these stories, that's impressive. And it's just an interesting idea to me because there's a question mark over whether how much of it is conscious on the part of JJ J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson and how much of it is that these stories, so stories like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and the kind of tropes that they feature and the sorts of journeys of women that they feature, it, could it perhaps be more about those stories becoming more of the norm and more accepted as society has progressed and, that I'm not saying that sexism no longer exists or anything like that, but we're obviously in a better place now than we were in the 1800s. I think that's not controversial. And, yeah, it's just an interesting idea as to whether the sequel trilogy is radical because it's taking ideas that were radical a long time ago and reapplying them for a modern age or whether it is just inserting them as is, and it's like a question of how subversive is it being. So I find that an interesting idea as well.
1: Yeah, with regards to JJ and Ryan, I would like to think that it is conscious, because making Ray the protagonist was a choice, and it yes. was something that JJ clearly felt very passionately about. Yes. Um, and i I would like to think that as, you know, veteran storytellers, very talented people, um they they knew the implications of that and would have thought quite deeply about the kind of story that they could tell with Ray yeah um and again like reading this book even though I have always looked at the sequel trilogy through the lens of Ray as the main character again yeah. it brought that home for me um because I know that in fandom there's been a lot of discussion around the importance of Kylo Ren um, yes and you, you get almost these extremes where he's either not important at all or mm-hmm. he is the main character and I guess yes. it depends on your perspective and what you mean by main character versus protagonist and deuteragonist and all this um, but from this analytical lens um, Ray is the main character for me and Kylo is incredibly important like, as the animist he is what facilitates a lot of her growth and obviously in universe he's incredibly important too he's the Skywalker. Yeah. Um, but I don't think any of that diminishes Ray's importance.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And, yeah, like, I, I absolutely think that Ray is the protagonist, it is very much her story, and Kylo is an important part of her story, but that's just it. He's the path of it. It's not that we're seeing his journey play out. If we were seeing his journey play out, we would have seen the start of his like progression like when he was back being like a little padawan with Uncle Luke <laughs> and then we would have followed everything that happened thereafter but it's not like that because we just jump in on him like when he's just in the middle of doing what he's doing as a First Order person whereas with Ray, we very much see her at her starting point like before she's involved in any wider galactic events so yeah that's an immediate marker of where we're encountering her um, and yeah, like I think I agree with you about Ryan and JJ being very conscious about their responsibilities in writing a female protagonist and the history of storytelling that's associated with female protagonists. I think I just raised it as a question because a part of me can be a bit cynical about these things because I've seen so many films do female protagonists poorly and it's clear that there's the whole mindset of oh, we'll just take a part that was written for a man and change it so it's a woman. And then it can still be an identical story. And I'm not, like, opposed to that. That's what happened with Alien. An Alien is amazing, you know? But I don't think that should be the template for writing a good female character. (laughs) And I don't for a minute think that's what J.J. and Ryan have done. I think they've done something much more interesting and something much more thoughtful, which, yeah, I definitely appreciate
1: yeah, because for all the parallels between Ray's story and Luke's story in the original mm. trilogy there are also a lot of differences and I mm. think that's what stands out. Um, I think there's just a lot more care taken with Ray's characterisation and the nuance in her vulnerability and strength mm. and how carefully they tread with regards to her past trauma and the arc mm. of her first like denying that and not being able to face it head on and then mm. f- over the course of the, the journey finding the strength to do that yes it's really powerful
0: yeah no it's really effective
1: in, in terms of the book in general I know you asked me to read the chapters on the Bronte novels but the Mary Shelley section as well was really amazing in its discussion of Frankenstein as a romantic reading of Paradise Lost with teen oh, girls nice. anxieties and sexual awakening and everything so yeah if anyone's I interested didn't know you that, read that chapter that's yeah. really good I mean I, I I went through it really quickly because I, I ran out of time but yes um, I'll go back and reread it for sure and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in that kind of thing
0: nice I'll definitely go and read that chapter as well did you read the chapter
1: on Paradise Lost? No I didn't have time yeah no so that was good I mean obviously there are a lot of references in in the chapters we were reading to Paradise Lost anyway because yes obviously it was hugely influential in how I mean it that's what was being subverted right because Milton's mm. a raging misogynist so <laughs> yeah Um, but we've talked before about the whole lucifer thing and there you that's the thing right it's that's what's really interesting about the sequel trilogy because you can pick out these parallels with the whole murderous snake and everything and and we've we've, like compared kylo to a lucifer like heathcliff like mr rochester like darcy like (laughs) character but um at the end of the day it's not paradise lost Because it's more in the realm of what we're going to be talking about. That it is almost like... And I I would love to see a sequel trilogy, a version of the story written by a woman. I would love eventually to get Rey written by a woman. I hope we do get that one day. And whether it's a novel or a TV series or whatever. But as it stands, I, I, I do think they're doing a really great job.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think this is probably a good point at which to dive into what the book actually has to say about Paradise Lost, because as you've mentioned, Kirsty, that's very, very foundational to basically all the other arguments in the book, because the idea is that Paradise Lost pretty much exemplifies everything that these female authors were engaging with and frequently trying to like subvert and reinvent for themselves. Because the whole idea of Paradise Lost is this epic poem written in the 1600s by John Milton. And it's about Lucifer's fall and his war on heaven, if you will. And that involves the whole temptation of Adam and Eve and everything. So it's the adaption of a Genesis from the Bible. Um, yeah, and what's most interesting is the way in which Paradise Lost makes... Lucifer slash Satan, such a compelling character, and it also does similar things with Eve, and it really like places those characters on a level, and like it's questionable as to how intentional it was on Milton's part, but you really often come away from that book or that poem really like identifying with those characters most of all, like more so than God and Adam, who very much represent the status quo in the patriarchy. Like You find yourself really empathising with these characters who are seeking to rebel against things and seeking to escape from the confines that they find themselves in. So I wanted to read out this particular paragraph because I found it helpful to encapsulate this. Significantly, Eve is the only character in Paradise Lost for whom a rebellion against the hierarchical status quo is as necessary as it is for Satan. Though he is in one sense oppressed or at least manipulated by God, Adam is after all to his own realm what God is to his, absolute master and guardian of the patriarchal rites of primogeniture. Though Milton goes to great lengths to associate Adam, God, Christ and the angels with visionary prophetic powers, that visionary night world of poetry and imagination, insofar as it is a demonic world, is more often subtly associated in Paradise Lost with Eve, Satan and femaleness, than with any of the good characters except the epic speaker himself. So I like that quote just because it neatly brings everything together that I'm most interested in talking about in relation to the sequel trilogy is this whole idea of these figures, Eve and Satan, who, like, from a surface look, you would think they were the most, like, divergent characters in the whole poem. You know, like, one is, like, the... Like innocent human woman who's being seduced by this like evil angelic being, it's that huge like power disparity and there's this difference in scale between the characters. But again, as the authors of *Madwoman in the Attic* point out, there is actually this equivalence between them and this mutual desire for rebellion. And what's interesting is that Milton is very much condemning of that desire to rebel, and it's all ultimately about affirming the status quo in the end and punishing Satan and Eve for their transgressions Um, whereas these female authors like the Brontes and Shelley they actually empathise with those characters and identify with them so strongly that they make them the heroes and what's most interesting is to see how those stories engage with that idea and hopefully people will follow where I'm going with this but Hmm. I... (laughs) Like in this situation, like on a very reductive, simplistic way, you could say that like the Lucifer, Satan figure is Kylo, and the Eve figure is Rey. Like again, you do have this whole idea about rebellion and resisting the existing patriarchal authority, who, in the context of the Last Jedi, is of course Luke, (laughs) and you get that very vividly and obviously illustrated in things like the hut scene where Ray and Kylo are communing through the Force and holding hands, basically. And Luke sees that, and then he is the whole angry god. And he literally brings the house down on them.
1: I think that's something we talked about before The Last Jedi even came out, right? That Luke would yeah. be in that kind of role. Yeah, um, it is. As someone who's removed himself from the world of humanity and like cut himself off from the force that he's absolved himself of that responsibility and, yes. and yeah, that he has this anger uh, at things um, the way that they've gone.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think what I find most interesting is the way in which that dynamic and these like transgressive figures, they're treated with sympathy and their connection is even treated with sympathy In the stories that seek to subvert the status quo because I think that's very much what we see happening in The Last Jedi so it would have been very very easy for Ryan Johnson and the filmmakers generally to frame that dynamic as one of like a seduction of the innocent you know Mm -hmm. like and to very much like emphasize the imbalance between them and the fact that Rey has been led astray and that Kylo's this cruel and wicked monster like, but that isn't what's done. It's all about blurring the lines between right and wrong and good and evil, I'm referring back to the roomy poem, <laughs> which fit in nicely.
1: Yeah, I think what's so interesting about reading this is that it kind of shines a light on some of the discussion that is going on within the fandom itself in terms of yeah. what the story is showing us because some people are coming from, at it from more of a Milton perspective and there are people like us who come at it more from... If we're going to do the comparison, it's the Bronte perspective. Um, So, you know, I saw a tweet the other day that was saying that someone hoped that Rey would be punished for her connection with Kylo and what she decided Mm. to do in The Last Jedi. So I think it's absolutely fascinating because we still see this conversation and discourse going on today. And I think that really highlights the power of the sequel trilogy. And, yeah. and what it's saying to people and what it says about how we think about female characters and by extension women yeah. um, and their sexuality. So. Yeah,
0: no, that's so true because, yeah, reading this and considering the films in these terms, it does very much bring into focus that it's not just about how the film engages with these ideas, it's also about how the audience at home engages with these ideas which is so, so fascinating to watch unfold. Because, yeah, we've seen it already. There's so many, like, think pieces and, like, analyses of all these relationships and the dynamics. And it is interesting to me that so many of the think pieces that have been written about the Rain Kylo dynamic, they do very much engage with that whole idea of the ambiguity and the, like, uncertainty of what's actually going on between them. But in the end, they do ultimately reach like a clearly cut moral resolution on what was actually happening with that, that dynamic because the most common interpretation is that well at the end the lines are clearly drawn between them again like the balance between good and evil is restored and they're very firmly on opposite sides again and
1: that's true from a certain point of view <laughs> well yeah okay. it's very retreating from the underworld again right like, yeah just, as we saw at the end of the force awakens but it highlights the difference between those two moments
0: Yeah, exactly. But I think it's just most interesting because in the way that some people talk about that resolution is almost as if that resolution erases everything that came before where, and I disagree with that and that I don't for a moment think it does, because I think what came before is still going to be crucial going forward. But of course, that's a future like tea leaves sort of scenario because we don't know what happens next yet. But I think it's not unreasonable.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's a tea leaf situation. I think that's a recognition of the fact that we're working with a three-act structure. Yeah. Which is fact.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But haven't you noticed people do that, though? Yes. You know, like, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just don't think that they're right. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's an episode nine, and it's being filmed right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we will see. Um, Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about how these like, tropes with the whole, like, Lucifer figure and the E-figure, how they're then, like, interacted with in these later stories. So I wanted to go into the part on Wuthering Heights a bit more and explain what that book does with this whole idea of, like, these figures as sympathetic people and, like, the whole muddying of the waters. So I think Wuthering Heights is perhaps the most interesting interrogation of that and easily the most radical so don't be wrong I also love Jane Eyre but I've just finished rereading Wuthering Heights and it's still pretty astonishing like in terms of how far that book goes and what it has its characters do and how it refrains from judgment in so many ways it's really interesting but yeah to give people a bit of context I'm sure everyone has like Some concept in their mind of what Wuthering Heights is, but I just wanted to clarify for people. There is a lot about the book that gets forgotten or misunderstood. So Wuthering Heights, obviously written by Emily Bronte, it's her only novel, and it's a book of two parts. So the first half of the book is very much about the relationship between Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff, who was brought into her family's home as a foundling when he was a child, and really doesn't go into their relationship at all to be honest which again is another part of the book that's like misremembered or forgotten but you really don't get many scenes of like Heathcliff and Catherine like being intimate with each other you don't really have a sense of what their relationship was like before it started to go wrong basically it's very much kept private to them Um, and yeah so it's a story of how they are driven apart and Catherine ultimately dies And then in the second half of the book, it's about the next generation, so the children of Catherine Heathcliff and Catherine's brother. And it's basically Heathcliff's revenge plot as he seeks to use those children to enact some obscure plan he has to take his revenge upon the world for all the injustice he was dealt and the pain he feels upon losing Catherine. And at the end of the novel, he basically concludes that the revenge plot is failing and he basically accepts the inevitability of his own death and he goes to the grave quite happily um which in itself should say a little bit about how weird this book is hmm. um yeah like i know you've read wuthering heights haven't you Kirsty? but it was a long time ago is it's, that right it's
1: been a while so i think most recently i watched the the tom hardy adaptation again the itv one <laughs> yeah yeah, which is very good. Yes, I recommend that for people if they're not already familiar with the story. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm with you. I still think that Wuthering Heights is incredibly transgressive, which is remarkable, you know, after all this time.
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's a very, very misunderstood book because I think a lot of people approach it as if it's a very like straightforward gothic romance. And it is obviously a romantic book and the romance is central to it, but that's just one facet of a much more complex plot. So, yeah, it's a fascinating read and I strongly recommend it. Um, But, yeah, in the context of this discussion,
1: I just wanted to read out another quote from the book, which is this. The tigerish opposite implied by Wuthering Heights emerges most dramatically when we bring all the novel's Miltonic elements together with its author's personal concerns in an attempt at a single formulation of Bronte's metaphysical intentions. The sum of this novel's visionary parts is an almost shocking revisionary whole. Heaven, or its projection, hell, Satan, a fall, mystical politics, metaphysical romance, orphanhood, and the question of origins. Disparate as those, some of these matters may seem, they all cohere in a rebelliously topsy-turvy retelling of Milton's and Western culture's central tale of the fall of woman and her shadow self, Satan. This fall, says Bronte, is not a fall into hell. It is a fall from hell into heaven, not a fall from grace, in the religious sense, but a fall into grace, in the cultural sense. Moreover, for the heroine who falls, it is the loss of Satan, rather than the loss of God, that signals the painful passage from innocence to experience.
0: Yeah, and I think that quote sums up quite nicely why exactly this book is so, so subversive Mm -hmm. and challenging and what it sets out to do. And of course, you'll notice from the list of items in the story that they mentioned, things like the metaphysical romance orphanhood question of origins those are all things that come up in the sequel trilogy as well in no way are those concepts unique to Wuthering Heights they occur in storytelling again and again and again and have done for thousands of years but they are like stock tropes from this type of story I suppose which again I think they use in the sequel trilogy it's they occur there both because they're also like integral to the original Star Wars so it's about continuing the threads from that and harkening back to what people know but I think they are also about referencing this more challenging type of story because that's how you get things like the reveal that Rey's parents are no one because if it were a traditional Star Wars story then yes Rey's like ancestors probably would have been like ancient jedis of great renown or she would have been the product of some prophecy or the child of the force but by doing it in the way that it's executed in the last jedi where ray is just this obscure child who was born to drunken parents and there are no answers i think that's much more challenging and interesting and it does raises all these ambiguities and questions that I think are very much closer to like this sort of gothic story than they are to something like Star Wars in the conventional sense.
1: What do you think, Kirsty? Absolutely. And again, coming back to us talking at the beginning about whether that was a conscious choice for Ryan and JJ, I really do think it was because Ryan's talked so eloquently about why he made that decision for Ray, And in terms of like what it means for Ray's story and the challenges that she's facing, when you compare those challenges to what Luke was facing, their journeys aren't actually that similar. They're almost the opposite. So yeah. he, he's contrasted explicitly, he said, the hardest thing for Luke to hear was that this alien shadow terrifying figure was his father, who he had built up in his mind as this amazing Jedi hero, and then to have to bridge that gap and, and love him and forgive him. But for Rey, it's the opposite, right? And mm. she's desperately searching, and and that's the the painful reveal for her. And the real tragedy is that she knew all along. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that for Rey, it's almost like she loses God and Satan all in one go. Yeah. Um, and to, to emphasize again, we're at the end of Act Two, but I I do think it's a, a huge moment for Rey that she feels the loss of Luke, you know, the God figure, uh, along with the the losing of this hope that she'd been sustaining for her parents and um, yeah. feels that sense of peace and purpose but also that she, she loses Kylo too um, yeah. through his decisions so yeah. Um, yeah at the end I think we are kind of seeing her transition there
0: yeah no it's such an interesting journey and with the whole question of origins it's interesting as well because Weatherin Heights does something very intriguing in how it contrasts the two halves of the story so Heathcliff his origin is unknown he was just found on the street in Liverpool and was just brought into the house and there's all these like parts of the book where it's very much like oh, you could be the child of the Queen of Sheba or some nonsense like that you know it's just the servants muttering amongst themselves but there's never any resolution there's never any answer it's always open-ended Hmm. and that's contrasted with the characters in the second half of the book where that half of the book is all about inheritance and like living up to the family name and reclaiming what is rightfully yours according to what is morally correct and what's morally justified so for that reason I think a lot of people are disappointed by the second half of Wuthering Heights because it does feel more conventional and it does feel more like bringing order back to the world but I think what's most interesting about how that book does it is that it doesn't necessarily take a side, you know, it presents that in that this is the conventional way in which this sort of story would go, but it presents that alongside continuing the story of Heathcliff, who like is irreligious and he is digging up dead bodies and he's just completely doing his own thing and he's his own person and he's not bound by any like wider forces he's a completely free soul and there's always an open question over whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because you get the narration in the book from Nellie Dean who tells most of the story and she's very moralizing and she condemns him but she's not the only narrating voice you also get the narration from Lockwood who's like the primary narrator because Nellie is telling the story to him And he actually thinks Heathcliff is a sort of hero and he describes him in those terms. And I think that that, I think those layers of narration are used very consciously to like heighten the ambiguity and to make it clear that there isn't like a straight answer and that the book isn't taking a position, which is what happens in something like paradise lost where it's very clear by the end that you are not meant to be rooting for Satan or Eve and that they were very (laughs) bad and naughty. Um, and yeah I think that's just so interesting and it raises this idea about a character like Ray I think there's almost almost a bit of Heathcliff in her you know I think a lot of people think about her very much as a more like typically feminine character but I think that the whole idea of Ray is that she does incorporate elements of both in the way that these that the great heroines from this sort of type of story do because it's all about finding the balance within yourself. And I think that she is hopefully on a journey where she learns to embrace the ambiguity that she represents. And she like, is less reliant on those external structures to find meaning and to define herself. So it was not very long-winded. I hope I feel like I made a point at the end of that.
1: Oh, you did. And I think that's something that, is really what I connect with so deeply with Rey in The Last Jedi, right? That she Mm. really comes in and not that she says what she wants because she doesn't really know, but that she's like, I'm going to figure this out and I need help and I'm not afraid to ask, but also I'm not always going to listen and do exactly what you say and I'm going to dive into this cave and I'm going to touch my enemy's hand (laughs) and I'm going to attack you when I know that you're not telling me the truth because the truth yeah. is important and i need it to make my decisions and then she does even though she's warned not to go yes and i just it, it's really powerful for me to watch that and i um every time i watch last jedi it hits me again it's like wow they really did go there with ray like having this argument with luke skywalker about yeah his nephew like that's yeah, it's really a big deal because that's Luke Skywalker, you know. He yeah. he is almost like a godlike figure for the fandom. So yeah, yeah, I, I do wonder sometimes if that's part of what um, feeds into some of the negativity around the reactions for Rey because she really is quite transgressive in that in that respect.
0: Yeah, I think it's often not articulated because it's quite complex what happens. I think if you see articulated at all, it's as Ray beat Luke Skywalker when she shouldn't have the power to be able to do that.
1: That's not the point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know, which I hate, but I really think that's sort of like how people are able to express it because otherwise it's all like mess physical and it's not so literal. You know, whereas Ray literally knocking a man down, that's easy to notice and easy to describe. Hmm. Whereas saying, I feel discomfort because Ray is constantly rebelling against Luke and doesn't need his authority and doesn't need to be trained by him she doesn't rely on him to craft who she's going to be going forward I think that's disconcerting to people
1: Mm, and she doesn't need to be his daughter
0: yeah exactly, that way she really represents a break from the past which is exciting for us but frightening and like what's going on for others because yeah it does raise all those questions about ambiguity and it creates an uneasy feeling is which again you see in wuthering heights a lot with heathcliff where everyone is disquieted and disturbed by him and again it's very different with ray because she she's a ray of sunshine and she's very nice and like lovely but yeah she does have these moments of wildness and these moments of anger and rebellion that identify her as something more savage and strange and i love that character the most when that those elements of her come out i think
1: yeah, I've got to say I don't see an awful lot of the Ray of Sunshine. I mean, maybe right, you know, early on in the Force Awakens, but that's that part of the heroine's journey when she's living in the illusion of a perfect world, and we yeah. find out later that it's because she was masking her own trauma for herself. That was a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I guess it comes from her name, but yeah, like you, I see a lot of nuance there in Ray, and a, she's yeah she i mean she wasn't socialized like yeah you know she to that respect she is kind of the heathcliff of the story in that she she raised herself to an extent and as such yeah. doesn't really care an awful lot about convention exactly. and we'll, we'll call it out and be like hey this is not cool <laughs>
0: exactly that's why she's such a great heroine so, I think in line with that whole idea of Ray's power and where her authority comes from as this sort of like outsider figure, I wanted to go to another quote from Mad Woman in the Attic. Um, would you perhaps want to read this one, Kirsty?
1: Sure. Yet the womb shaped cave is also the place of female power. The umbilicus mundi, one of the great antechambers of the mysteries of transformation. As herself, a kind of cave, every woman might seem to have the cave's metaphorical power of annihilation. The power, as Beauvoir puts it elsewhere, of night in the entrails of the earth. For, in many a legend, she notes, we see the hero lost forever as he falls back into the maternal shadows, cave, abyss, hell. Summarising the characteristics of those female great-, great weavers who determine destiny, Norns, Fates, Priestesses of Demeter, Prophetesses of Gaea, Helen Diner points out that all knowledge of fate comes from the female depths none of the surface powers knows it whoever wants to know about fate must go down to the woman meaning the great mother, the weaver woman who weaves the world tapestry out of genesis and demise in her cave of power
0: yeah and I really like that quote because of how it emphasises this symbolic cave area as this place that is both terrifying and empowering and I really like that contrast between how, like, the cave might be viewed in traditionally masculine stories and then how it's sort of appropriated and reinvented in more feminine narratives. Because, yeah, as that quote highlights, like, this whole idea of subterranean places and caves and, like, going underground... That's considered horrifying, and it's very much associated with women and all the terrors we represent. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you also get these other like stories where there's actually great power to be found in caves. And I think people will know where I'm going with this because <laughs> there's a very literal cave featured in the last Jedi, which is of course the cave at the bottom of the island that Ray goes into and i think you see that contrast between masculine and feminine interpretations of the cave embodied very very cleanly in terms of how luke and ray respond to the cave because you obviously have luke who's terrified of it and just perceives it as a place of the dark side and a place that you should never go to and you should avoid it whereas ray is immediately drawn to it and after the conversation with shantles kylarran
1: she dives she- into a vagina
0: Yeah, she dives into a vagina cave pretty much, yep. And yeah, it's very important that she isn't frightened when she goes there. You can tell that she feels confident in that space and she goes up to the mirror ball, knowing what she wants, and that cave is just full of other rays. (laughs) It's a very literal ray cave where she completely dominates it and I think the lesson for her which she doesn't appreciate in the moment but I think she comes to appreciate is that this is your place and this is you and you'd need to stop looking elsewhere for your meaning and for how you will define yourself because everything you need is already there like which is a lesson I think she's always carried with her but is about realizing that lesson and actualizing it which is very different. And yeah, like I just love it. It's so on the nose and it's so extra. And it's also interesting how the use of the cave differs between The Last Jedi and The Empire Strikes Back. So it might just seem initially like a lazy revisit of that whole idea. But I think in The Empire Strikes Back, it's much more straightforward. It's literally the cave is a place of horror. Luke goes in there. He has a fight with Vader, cuts off his head, sees his own face in Vader's mask, And I'm sure you could do all kinds of analysis on that image. But there's no empowerment in that. It's not that he's really discovering anything that truly informs his journey going forward. Whereas for Ray, that is a moment of real transformation. And that is a place that is very closely tied to everything that she represents and everything that she needs to learn to go forward in her journey
1: i think for luke it's just that at that point obviously we can see as the the viewers that it's foreshadowing the reveal that vader is him right yes he comes from vader but yes he he doesn't know that at the time so he doesn't have that realization yeah and it's yeah like you say it's a more straightforward shadow figure thing whereas for ray it's all about looking inward Um, yes I love that whole section of The Last Jedi because it's quite an extended moment on Act Two at that point, right? You have several scenes that just focus on that as opposed to jumping around to Canto by it and back to Poe, which she has been doing otherwise. Because you have, like you say, the shirtless Bond scene. Then she dives in um, and then, yeah, it goes straight back. It's almost sandwiched between those two two scenes um, before Luke comes in. So it's this very isolated world. So it's romantic in that respect, too, that she's yes. just on this island, planet, um, away from the civilised world, and exploring in that regard, too. Yeah. I mean, And no, also, this passage reminded me of another movie that I loved this year, um, Annihilation. Yeah, same.
0: <laughs> when, when I saw that word, I was like, oh my god, did someone involved with Annihilation read this book?
1: Maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't Quite be possibly. surprised if... Yeah, this was the kind of thing that Alex Garland was going for. Obviously, he never fully explains exactly what's going on in his movies, and he sh- I don't think he should. And I don't think Ryan should either, even though he's been asked to several times. Yeah. Um, this kind of thing is obviously symbolic, so it's designed for the audience to take away from it whatever they need to. But yeah. the parallels between those two movies that came out so close together, it was like, oh, wow, yeah, see, we can see this pattern in um, storytelling with female protagonists on this kind of journey. So
0: yeah. Exactly, it's all there. Um Yep. Yeah. And yeah, then just to return to Wuthering Heights proper, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that sense of identification between Heathcliff and Catherine, and that whole idea of the interaction between the masculine and the feminine. Um yep, yeah, and this is the quote. Heathcliff is clearly just as male in his satanic outcast way as Edgar in his angelically established way. But at the same time, on a deeper associative level, Heathcliff is female, on the level where younger sons and bastards and devils unite with women in rebelling against the tyranny of heaven, the level where orphans are female and heirs are male, where flesh is female and spirit is male, earth female, sky male, monsters female, angels male. And I wanted to introduce that quote because I really like that whole idea of this intense identification between like a male figure and a female figure like, again this whole idea of like seeming opposites or contrasts who there's this actual sense of strong identification between the two of them and that's what keeps them linked and I mentioned earlier that in Wuthering Heights it's often misremembered or misunderstood in that people think there's all these like great romantic declarations of love between Catherine and Heathcliff and that is like a bit of like a soppy kissy book. It's, <laughs> Who <suppose>. thinks that <laughs> about Wuthering Heights? Yeah, but seriously, like when it's put out, like with a bleeding rose on the cover with the label Bella and Edward's favourite book on it. What? Like after that's literally a thing that happened, Kirsty. I'm. Not oh kidding. no. Yeah, that's literally a thing that happened. So (laughs) for some people, I I really don't think anyone who's read it could be left with this impression. But I think in the popular imagination, it's considered more traditionally romantic than actually is. And I think that Emily Bronte very deliberately omits the scenes that explain exactly what the connection between Catherine and Heathcliff is because it's almost beyond language. It's something that she doesn't want to attempt to describe because she'd always kind of shortchange it. So in the actual book, you only really get a sense for that relationship after it's already broken down, after Catherine has betrayed Heathcliff by Marion Linton instead, mm-hmm. and is al- always filtered through the narration of a character like Nellie, for example. And I find that like, notable because, again, I think that The Last Jedi does something quite similar with Rey and Kylo. Because it doesn't like make it extremely obvious or explicit as to the nature of the connection between Rey and Kylo Ren. So much of it is conveyed in expressions and looks and body language. like Which, while they convey what to us feels like a quite clear message of a romantic relationship... I do think that ambiguity is extremely intentional, so it's meant to be something profound and metaphysical that transcends like the sort of normal tropes you'd associate with a relationship between a man and a woman. It's meant to be something that goes way beyond that.
1: Yeah, I guess that kind of reminds me of the things that Jason Fry was talking about earlier this week when he did his big thread on Twitter about the, the Last Jedi novelisation... Mm. He was talking about how he thinks that um, Ray and Carlo's relationship transcends romance, that that o- is almost an analogue that we fall back on as viewers because we don't have the force. So yeah. their connection is deeper than something arguably any human in the real world could feel. Yeah, um, And I take his point, but to me that is almost the definition of romance in, in a literary sense. Yeah, you know? um, yeah That's why we're drawn to these kind of stories, because it's not mundane and... And something that we are able to experience, it's, it's almost more than that. But yeah, but because of that, it, it is romantic.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's true. Like, <laughs> but to prepare for this, I actually started listening to a few podcasts. And I started listening to one that was, I'm sorry to say this, hosted by a man. And I literally had to turn it off after a few minutes. Because his whole premise for the like lecture that he was giving about the book was that, oh, Wuthering Heights is more than a mere romance. It's actually about ghosts and revenge and hauntings. And I was just staggered by how someone could miss the point to such it's an not... extreme. <sighs> wow, Because, <okay>. it, yeah, <laughs> you understand why I can listen.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've noticed that as a trend in a lot of, um, and it, it is often, sorry, I know this is like the men bashing episode, apparently. <laughs> um, not all men. Just mm. putting that out. it's clearly not all men but um, a lot of um, male literary critics I've noticed recently is like this new trend somehow to um, deny that these incredibly romantic stories, I mean Jay, even Jane Austen people are like mm. asserting that her stories are not romantic because they're also about other things as if yeah. a story that has a romance at the centre of it can only be about that one thing and does not have larger themes or it's not trying to say anything larger with that romance it's like yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of depressing
0: (laughs) yeah there it is but again it's another reason to appreciate the sequel trilogy because it doesn't fall into that trap and it does very much extol the importance of that personal intimate connection between two people and it makes that seem every bit as profound and important and moving as we would want it to be presented Um, Yeah, so I think we'll revisit certain elements from Wuthering Heights later, if we have time. (laughs) We probably don't want this to go on for three hours. Um, But yeah, for now, I just wanted to go into Jane Eyre, which we'll see how long we talk about it for, but hopefully not quite as long. Um, Yeah, I'm less immediately familiar with Jane Eyre, because I haven't just reread it, as I have Wuthering Heights. Um, You've read Jane Eyre, right, Kirsty?
1: Yeah, but it's been a few years again. Mm, Um, Yeah. I've watched a few of the adaptations since then. I come back to the Carrie Fukunaga version a lot. Um, yes. But For
0: me, it's the Ruth Wilson and Toby Stevens version. All the I way. do like that one too. Yeah, but I don't think there's good. a version I
1: dislike, to be honest. So Yeah.
0: I think it's an easier story to adapt. I'm not sure I've ever seen a really great adaption of Wuthering Heights. Certainly not all of Wuthering Heights, because almost every version cuts off the second half of the book, which mm. is frustrating. Um, no, understandable. Um, but yep, Jane Eyre, um, I think people might be even more familiar with the story of Jane Eyre than the story of Wuthering Heights, to be honest, um, because I think it's more easily encapsulated.
1: Yeah. It's a simpler, like, buildings Roman style, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. It is a more conventional story, though it still does some really interesting things. Um, yeah, so in Jane Eyre, you obviously have Jane, who grows up as a poor abused orphan before like becoming a governess, and going to the household of Mr Rochester, where eventually, after a series of trials, they fall in love. Um, But then, at the altar, it is revealed that Mr Rochester is actually already married, and Jane flees to basically find herself, because she doesn't feel like she can debase herself by becoming Rochester's mistress. Um, And then, through a series of quasi-mystical events she is called back to Rochester and they reunite on equal footing and then they get married and presumably live happily ever after which that description on its own term should tell you why it's an easier story to encapsulate because yeah, it's much easier to describe
1: yeah I mean uh, I think Jane Eyre is basically a fairy tale compared yeah. to Wuthering Heights anyway
0: <laughs> oh yeah exactly yeah, Wuthering Heights is like what is this
1: <laughs> yeah you can kind of think of it as like a Beauty and the Beast story
0: yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, would you like to read out the first quote I have about Oh
1: Jane yes. Eyre from
0: *Madwoman in the Attic*, which is Thank you.
1: quite similar to what I was just saying? Um, exactly. Jane's first meeting with Rochester is a fairy tale meeting. Charlotte Bronte deliberately stresses mythic elements: an icy twilight setting out of Coleridge or Fuseli, a rising moon, a great lion-like dog gliding through the shadows like a North of England spirit called a Trash? which haunted solitary ways and sometimes came upon belated travellers followed by a tall steed and on its back a rider yet what are we to think of the fact that the prince's first action is to fall on the ice together with his horse and exclaim prosaically what the deuce is to do now (laughs) clearly the master's mastery is not universal Jane offers help and Rochester leaning on her shoulder admits that necessity compels me to make you useful <laughs> Thus, <laughs> what a charmer! Thus, yeah. though, in one sense, Jane and Rochester begin their relationship as master and servant, prince and Cinderella, Mister B and Pamela. In another way, they begin as spiritual equals. Hmm. What does this remind us of? <laughs> hmm. Spiritual <laughs> equals, prince and Cinderella, you say?
0: Yeah. I'm asking all the difficult questions today, but yeah, to stop being an asshole. Um. Obviously, this is kind of reminiscent of how Rey and Kylo meet in The Force Awakens, although I'd say there's also crossover with the events of the interrogation, because in the first encounter between Rey and Kylo in the woods in Takadana, they obviously make a big point of stressing that imbalance between them and how Kaido is so powerful compared to her, and he does a good, like, Performance as the like evil like specter out to spirit her away in that scene. So there's no humbling or bringing him down to earth until that interrogation scene, where obviously Rey is able to flip things on the head and show him that she can give as good as she gets. Basically, yeah, it's incredibly satisfying to watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great. So I think you need to look at those scenes with Rey and Kylo in partnership in order to see the equivalence to what's been described here but i do think it's remarkably close it's like wow yeah it's quite really close yeah
1: yeah it's emphasizing that class distinction between them which obviously comes up again in the last jedi with his horrible speech that he makes to her <laughs> yeah um which is very bad but yeah like like they say it's pure fairy tale and um definitely has that gothic thing going on with it too
0: yeah, exactly. It's just that obviously it's all described in a book due to the medium you're talking about. Whereas in the film it's all cinematic, so it's all about things like the fact that they meet in a lovely forest, which again looks like it could come out of a fairy tale, and the fact that Kylo carries her up in his arms and like spirits her away in that fashion. Like rather than I don't know, like tossing her tossing her over his shoulder like she was a sack of potatoes or something.
1: Yeah, I think they're going there for a more Hades and Persephone vibe, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's all this very like, heightened, stylized, cinematic language, which immediately gets you thinking about, hmm, what's going on here? This is interesting. I wonder what this portends. Um, And yeah, it certainly did inspire lots of people to write about it. So it's very good. Mm-hmm. Um... Doo-doo-doo. And yeah, like with Jane Eyre in relation to the sequel trilogy and the Ray and Kylo stuff, um, I think it's much easier to draw parallels between the separation of Jane and Rochester and Ray and Kylo than it is the separation of Catherine and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, because the separation between those characters in that book is very much about like essentially denial of your own self because in Wuthering Heights it's all about this intense identification that Catherine and Heathcliff share to the point where you get things like he's more myself than I am like which is a very literal embodiment of that idea so yeah you get that but the separation is brought about through catherine's denial of that identification because she seeks to compromise that by marrying another man and obviously then that sends heathcliff running away because he just can't bear it because that compromises this bond that they share between them and i'm just trying to think well
1: the comparison would be that jane discovers that he's already married right yeah so exactly she thinks just like raiders in the throne room that they are forming this alliance, they're on the same page, they share, there's there's honesty and truth in their connection, and yes. then it all comes crumbling down when he reveals that he actually wants to rule the galaxy with her and not come back to the light.
0: Yeah, exactly. And she realises that like the connection that she thought they shared was founded on a false premise, essentially. And that's exactly what happens in both The Last Jedi and Jaina. So it's a very similar sort of dynamic you see going on like which is why this is what which is why it's much easier to bring in Jane Eyre than Wolverine Heights in this moment because it's just not like for like in the other book because it's much more messy um but yeah with Jane Eyre it's like interesting how that separation is handled especially like the immediate aftermath of that rift between them because like when Ray makes it very clear that, no, don't go this way, please don't do this. Like Kylo immediately starts resorting to like the truth about her parents, which is essentially about trying to remind her of that disparity between them, which is very much about bringing her low and like asserting his authority because that's what he retreats to in that moment. And again, in Jane Eyre, you see something kind of similar go on. Because when Jane is freaked out, Rochester's recourse is essentially to offer to make her his mistress. (laughs) Tempting. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Like, who could refuse that? Um, And, of course, that is also about reinforcing a power imbalance (laughs) between them. So, in both cases, it's this idea of the equality between them being compromised. Like, which is also kind of what happens in *Wuthering Heights*, but again, it's handled a bit differently. But yeah, it's remarkably similar. <laughs> it is, Jane and you the know, sequel trilogy, and I love it.
1: I know in the throne room when Kyla makes his plea, like Rafe, she says something. She's saying, "Please don't do this. Please don't go this way." But she doesn't respond with words. Um, she responds with an action, trying to take the saber back. But I can mm. almost visualize her saying, "You know what, Jane does that." I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. Do you yeah. think because I'm poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? Um, mm. And the whole, you know, I'm no bird thing. Because yeah. that's what he wants to do. Like, from her perspective, it's that he wants to keep her in the cage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Ray says no thank you. And <laughs> so does Jane. Yeah, exactly. But the hearts Which are broken, is... so...
0: Yeah, it's such a great moment in that book. I love it. And it's also a great moment in the sequel trilogy, but it's, I don't know, I guess because we don't have the end in the story, it's also just a bit raw and painful (laughs) because I want so badly
1: for it to end well. I know, but I do love the heartbreak too. (laughs) I've got to love the angst.
0: Yeah, yeah. You've got to have the um, angst in the drama for the happy moments to be worth it. Um. But yeah, that separation is crucial and this is a point that's made in the book quite powerfully um, because Jane absolutely needs to go off and figure out who she is for herself because throughout the whole book of Jane Eyre there's this running thread of integrity and Jane having this very, very, what I'm trying to think... Um, And Jane having a very clearly determined moral compass that she will not breach under any circumstances. And she needs to leave Rochester because she was so close to accepting the offer and compromising herself according to his wishes. And she needs to go away and re-establish who she is for her own benefits before they can be together. So... Yeah, what happens in the book is that she goes and joins the Rivers family who, like for a series of crazy coincidences, are also her cousins, (laughs) because that's what happens in these books. Um, But yeah, would you like to read out the next paragraph I've highlighted, Kirsty?
1: Yeah. At first, however, it seems that St. John is offering Jane a viable alternative to the way of life proposed by Rochester. For where Rochester, like his dissolute namesake, ended up appearing to offer a life of pleasure, a path of roses, albeit with concealed thorns, and a marriage of passion, St. John seems to propose a life of principle, a path of thorns with no concealed roses, and a marriage of spirituality. Jane's early repudiation of the spiritual harmonics offered by Helen Burns and Miss Temple is the first hint that, while St. John's way will tempt her, she must resist it. That, like Rochester, he is akin to her is clear, But where Rochester represents the fire of her nature, her cousin represents the ice. And while for some women, ice may suffice, for Jane, who has struggled all her life, like a sane version of Bertha, against the polar cold of a loveless world, it clearly will not. As she falls more deeply under St. John's freezing spell, she realises increasingly that to please him, I must disown half my nature. And as his wife, she reflects, she would be always restrained, forced to keep the fire of my nature continually low, though the imprisoned flame consumed vital after vital.
0: Yeah. I really, really like that quote.
1: (laughs) Me too. This says it all.
0: Yeah, it does. It captures it so well. And I really think that this sort of thing is probably what we're going to see in Nine. Would you agree with that, Kirsty?
1: Yeah, but I'm interested to see how they do it. Um, Yes. I don't think it's going to be a case of like an actual love triangle or anything. But no. I think, in terms of like the way that Jane enters the civilized world once more in that gothic sense, she's leaving the house. Um, yes, I feel like Ray rejoining the Resistance, and obviously it's not a one-for-one comparison because Star Wars is Star Wars. The Resistance is a cause, and Ray identifies with that cause. She's on the side that she belongs in, or at least she thinks she does. And yes. it is morally, it is the right place to be. And Kylo yes. is positioning himself in the wrong place to be. He's miserable. <laughs> yeah um but i do think there is going to be this soul searching for ray and i don't know if we're going to get this specifically but i would love to see her kind of go off by herself for a little while i don't know if that will work cinematically so i, I don't know yeah. if jj would go there but with all this talk of them returning to jakku it would be kind of nice to see her like revisiting her at or something like that you know yeah um, i don't know what we'll get i still i'm still not really touching nine predictions just because we can look at it in broad strokes in terms of what we're doing here with like the three-act structure but yeah um, i don't have specifics how about you yeah
0: yeah no like i broadly agree with you i'd really like to see ray like just have a journey where she is completely alone and like where she like discovers something else about herself through that process, or maybe like reaffirms something that she already knew. So I think that's just as valuable and just as useful, as long as it's not about her parentage again. <laughs> I think we've had so much about that. Um, and yeah, like I think it's going to be really interesting to see how she wrestles with this identity that she now has as the last Jedi in the hope of the resistance, because it's a question of how much does she want to own that and like how much does she need to reinvent what that means because yeah at the moment people understand what it means to be a jedi particularly the last jedi in a very specific way and i'd like to see ray like do something with that whole concept and make it her own somehow bring something of herself to it so i don't like to see this whole idea of that role just being assigned to her and then ray like just meet, meeting it just filling that role like as she's expected to and nothing more and i don't think that will happen i think they will have her change it somehow or say like no i don't want to be like this let's do it differently this time like and i think that will happen but yeah it's impossible to say what specific form that will take
1: yeah i really like this description here about you know, this life of pleasure that's offered, a path of roses with concealed thorns and a marriage of passion, because I really do think that that is what's offered in that front room. Yeah. Um, and that it takes a lot of strength for Ray to turn that down, because from the perspective of that movie, it's kind of offered up as what she's been looking for, this belonging and this connection. Yeah. But she can't do it.
0: Exactly. And it also goes back to that identification between them that we've been discussing from the beginning here, because you have that idea of both of these people feeling betrayed by the wider forces that surround them. So Kylo obviously has this sense of betrayal by Luke, by his parents, by everyone. And Rey also feels a sense of betrayal. She was betrayed by her parents who abandoned her. She was betrayed by Uncle Plutt her whole life. She was betrayed by the Republic who never, like, sought to implement law on her horrible planet where the slave trade (laughs) ran ran rife, basically. And so he's appealing to that identification between them and the shared pain, the shared resentment they feel in order to sell this to her. And again, like Jane, she has too much integrity to bow to that, but it is so tempting for her, because she does identify exactly with what he's selling, and she must, from a certain point of view, be able to, like, see the reasoning behind why he's proposing what he proposes, you know, Mm -hmm. getting rid of all these old structures and creating something completely new, that must be very enticing, but like her personal values I mean she can't accept it because she knows that he's pursuing it from the wrong place, that he's pursuing it from a place of pain and anger and hurt when it needs to be about building something new and making things better and improvement. Like Obviously, the whole thing is about not tearing things down, but building
1: them up. Yeah. Just emphasising to me how gothic The Last Jedi actually is in terms of its use of locations and the sets and everything... Because Kylo, mm. he's basically living on the Star Destroyer. That's like the Gothic house, right? Yes, exactly. He doesn't yeah. really leave it. Whenever he connects with Rey, he's just there moping around, either in his bedroom or like looking out at the production. Or he's yeah, it's very lifeless and dark. And Rey, yeah. by contrast, is on this incredibly romantic moor landscape. You know, like you get those shots of Jane wandering around the moors. Yeah. Um, with her hair whipping around. Like I really do feel yeah. like that's that's a conscious thing on Ryan's part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And whenever they're together, there's always that sense of vibrancy or texture to the environments they're in. So when even when they first encounter each other, you know, like it, it's more about how they personally behave. But there's the personality that's inherent in like Kyler Ren skidding through a corridor <laughs> and the fact that they encounter when raising the rain and that sort of thing is all very, like, sensual and tactile in a way that Kylo's environments never are when he's on his own. It's just so separate. Mm -hmm. And then we obviously move on a bit further in Jane Eyre, which is basically to discuss the circumstances in which Jane and Rochester are reunited. So, yeah, could you read the next quote, please,
1: Kirsty? Um... Jane's first presentment of that event comes dramatically as an answer to a prayer for guidance. Sinjin is pressing her to reach a decision about his proposal of marriage, believing that I had now put love out of the question and thought only of duty. She entreats heaven to show me, show me the path. As always, at major moments in Jane's life, the room is filled with moonlight, as if to remind her that powerful forces are still at work both without and within her. And now, because such forces are operating, she at last hears, she is receptive to, the bodiless cry of Rochester. Jane! 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 Her response is an immediate act of self-assertion. I broke from St. John. It was my time to resume ascendancy. My powers were in play and in force. But her sudden Mm. forcefulness, like her presentiment itself, is the climax of all that has gone before. Her new and apparently telepathic communication communion with Rochester, which many critics have seen as needlessly melodramatic, has been made possible by her new independence and Rochester's new humility. The plot device of the cry is merely a sign that the relationship for which both lovers had always longed is now possible, a sign that Jane's metaphoric speech of the first betrothal scene has been translated into reality. My spirit addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal as we are. For to the marriage of Jane's and Rochester's true minds, there is now, as Jane unconsciously guesses, no impediment. Hmm. Hmm. Powerful forces. Telepathic Telepathic communion? communion.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's very on the nose. (laughs) Like, again, that's an aspect of Jane Eyre that I think a lot of people forget happens. Well, it's kind of weird. It comes out of nowhere. (laughs) It does completely come out of nowhere. It's totally strange but it's also super romantic and evocative and i kind of love it
1: <laughs> me too but i also love it in the last jedi so yeah yeah and i guess no, the way it's presented like the- there it comes out of nowhere i mean yeah i know with the force awakens we kind of analyzed a lot in regards to the interrogation and whether they were forming like a force bond kind of thing there but in the last jedi it's like what like 45 minutes in ray wakes up and suddenly he's there in her hut
0: yeah no, it's meant to be very jarring. It's not like a connection that's summoned. Like because in Jane Eyre as the book points out, like it's very much something that's asked for. It's basically like, Give me a sign <laughs> and then the connection initiates. So it's very much like divine intervention in that book. Whereas in The Last Jedi it's much more random and much more jarring. Um which Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's worth considering the nature of the connections we're talking about, because in The Last Jedi, that connection is obviously connected with Snoke, or at least he so claims it to be. Whereas in Jane Eyre, you're talking about something that is almost literally heaven sent. Jane calls to the heavens for guidance, and they connect her with Rochester through their minds so that they can be reunited, because the time is right, the time has come and yeah like I find it an interesting idea because you do get a sense of disillusionment with Rey and Kylo like towards the end in relation to their connection because they had believed it was something personal to them and something that they were in control of to an extent and that it was private and then when they realize that Snoke is involved and a participant in that to some degree that feels like a betrayal and it makes them question what they have, essentially. So, again, I hate to go into nine predictions and I'll just say something quickly. But what I would like to see is that if the bond does reinitiate in some form in episode nine, I wouldn't like it to be just random again. I would like it to be in a moment of like soul searching and where one or both of them really, really are seeking something can desperately need help and guidance and then it connects again I would like I to I think see that would be like a that. powerful
1: contrast from how things end in The Last Jedi right that Rey's willfully closing that door but something mm. could happen to make her open it again
0: yeah exactly it would have to be a willing choice I wouldn't want to see it be arbitrary and random again because I think the use of that device in that specific way that's run its course mm-hmm. it needs to be
1: employed differently right yeah, I don't think J- J.J.'s interested in just kind of doing the same thing again. That would seem redundant. No. It's like, oh, wow, that cool full sprint thing. Everyone
0: likes that. Let's just do it again.
1: <laughs> but no. equally to that point, like you say, I don't think it's just going to be forgotten. I think it will just be adapted for the third act in an appropriate way.
0: Yeah, no. And they can just look to Jane Now They've got a perfect <laughs> reference point for how to handle it. Um. Yeah, and again, I like that whole idea about the fact that they are reunited again when they're both ready to be reconnected because again in The Last Jedi it's very clear that they're just too different at that point, the point that Carlo makes his offer. They are going in vastly different directions and they just didn't realise it until the point when Carlo declares his intentions and for them to be together and for them to connect, they need to find that common footing and... I think there definitely needs to be some humbling going on for Kylo. <laughs> he needs to say bye-bye to that power trip that he's currently on. That's a very important step. I do you um, think the
1: seeds are there at the end when he's on the ground. and mm,
0: Definitely. He's literally bowing his head, yeah, basically. So I think that's indicative of where they will probably go with that character. I don't think that from the outset we're going to see him be like, oh, I'm so sorry, please let me back. Ah." like It's going to be a journey that's going to be a trajectory for the characters. Um, But yeah, I definitely think he's going to end up fully cognizant of what he's done and hopefully penitent for that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And yeah, just to spin it back to Wuthering Heights a minute. Again, I find that interesting because... With the whole second half of that book, Heathcliff is still prominent because while Catherine, the older Catherine, she's only in the first half, which is why it's harder to think of her as a protagonist and it's much easier to assign that role to Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. Um, Heathcliff is very much like a main force and he's really responsible for orchestrating the events of the whole novel, basically. And what's most interesting is that at the very end of the book, he basically realises that he was going about things in the wrong way. He becomes cognizant that it was foolish to go on this quest for revenge. And that he realises that it was basically pointless to seek to punish these descendants of the people who he felt wronged him. Because it really doesn't have anything to do with his main goal, which is him with Catherine so there is that moment of clarity for him before he dies but then in that book because of how weird it is and how topsy-turvy the logic is that's his happy ending like it's not like most books where you die and that's oh no you died that's so sad for him that's like woo, <laughs> We're back together
1: well yeah it's metaphysical romance isn't it
0: yeah exactly it's metaphysical romance And for him, the highest state he could possibly attain is togetherness with Catherine. And what he realises at the very end is that he can be together with her when he dies. And so he basically starts starving himself and exposing himself to the elements deliberately in pursuit of that. It's not quite suicide, but it's very much easing that on. And I point that out because it's interesting to see this journey of a character who was so bent on revenge and so obsessed of all this negativity and like felt wronged by everyone and betrayed by everyone, but he does ultimately wake up to the fact that it's gaining him nothing. It's, it, again, it's like that quote from Resistance, where it's like, you've got to forgive each other or no one wins, <laughs> basically. And Heathcliff doesn't get there, because that's not the kind of book that Wuthering Heights is. But he does recognise that pursuing like this mindless stretch of revenge isn't achieving anything, and so he gives up on it, ultimately. And, yeah, I anticipate that being what happens with Kylo. Not with the death thing, because <laughs> they're not going to go in that direction with it. But I do think we're going to have that moment of clarity and realisation where he really reflects on what he's done, why he was doing it, and why it's not the right path for him. I certainly hope that's what happens anyway. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. It's just going to be interesting seeing the events that incite that realisation in him.
1: Yeah, because there's been a lot of debate around what role Leia would have played in 9.
0: Yeah, exactly. She would have been so, so critical to his arc, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that, because... I certainly think they're going to try and capture that, but it obviously won't be in the same way that they originally intended. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that's probably a reasonable point to wind this up on. And since we've been going for about two hours, (laughs) it feels like a good time. Um, Yeah, we really hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Um, I've certainly had a lot of fun talking about it, and it really helped me to solidify my own thoughts about some of these things. So, yeah, I just hope I was lucid enough for it to be an interest in listen.
1: Uh, did you enjoy the discussion, Kirsty? I did. And I, f- I feel like we barely scratched the surface. As always, we could keep on going <laughs> for hours. Um, oh, definitely. So if yeah. there are certain elements of these stories that people think we overlooked and we want to maybe return to at some point, you know, we will absolutely come back to this topic. But obviously, it's something that we have a strong interest in with regards to current Star Wars storytelling. So, yes. if people have questions or like follow up points, please email us at scavengershorde at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter. Yeah, definitely. We'd love we to hear come from back you to it soon. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, awesome. Cool. So, you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find
1: you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and until next time. Bye. Bye.